0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: I have you loud and clear.
2: <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Science.
3: And that is to say, physics, medicine, medicine. nature, or
2: Speech. time, to brain, life, the universe. This week, we're drawing rings around the world, looking at all the junk that we've dumped into orbit and how it's coming back to bite us.
3: Plus, scientists engineer a synthetic genome from scratch, new insights into treating obsessive-compulsive disorder and the fight to save gorillas from Ebola. I'm Chris Smith.
2: I'm Kat Arney. And this is The Naked Scientists.
3: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, scientists have announced that they've successfully engineered from scratch a significant part of the DNA genome of yeast. The team have now made synthetic forms of six of the yeast's 16 chromosomes, and these are the DNA hubs that are inside cells and where genes are located, and inserted into yeast cells in place of the native chromosomes. These synthetic forms actually booted up and worked normally. This, researchers say, brings us a step closer to the goal of producing completely synthetic life. New York-based scientist Jeff Bucher is leading the project.
0: The papers that came out in Science this week describe the complete design of a synthetic version of the yeast genome, and that would be the yeast commonly used to brew beer and bake bread. It's also a very important organism for basic science research. And we're announcing that five additional chromosomes uh, have been synthesized to this design. They are alive and well inside a yeast cell and powering the normal growth of such a yeast cell.
3: Talk me through how you did that and for what reason.
0: We started with the genome spread out on a computer screen, essentially, We wrote computer code to assist us in making systematic alterations to the genome sequence. To give you an example of how extensive that can be, something like one-sixth of the bases or letters in in the genome were either removed, altered, or replaced by a different sequence. So it's really like a very heavily edited manuscript, if you will. In fact, we sometimes jokingly refer to the computer code that we use to do this as track changes for genomes, if you're familiar with the Microsoft Word application. After that is done... The designed sequence is chopped up into very small bits of 100 DNA letters that can be synthesized on a machine. There are many companies out there that make these small DNAs referred to as oligonucleotides. And then these short snippets of DNA are strung together into ever larger pieces of DNA. And then the final stage is that pieces of 60,000 DNA letters or so are mixed together with a yeast cell, and they go and swap themselves into the chromosome and remove the native material that's there until the entire chromosome is replaced. The native DNA is gone and the synthetic DNA is there in its place.
3: So just to orientate people, when we're talking about a chromosome, this is a molecule of DNA that has potentially thousands of genes in it and those genes are made of individual letters of DNA. You have edited the DNA sequence in a computer, made an artificial form, assembled it, and then swapped in your assembled forms to replace those original DNA codes in the yeast chromosomes. And so you end up ultimately with yeast cells that have these artificial or edited genomes working in them, rather than their native, original, wild-type genome.
0: I couldn't have said it better myself.
3: But why? (laughs) That's the question. I mean, what's the point of doing this, and what does this prove? The fact that these cells can be booted up in this way, and they're running, they're operating, what does that show us?
0: It shows us many things. One of the things that we've learned is that we can do remarkable things to the structure of those chromosomes, We can rearrange them in ways that haven't been seen in nature. And the yeast seems to be not upset about these alterations and continues to grow very well despite the fact that we've moved huge chunks from one chromosome onto another chromosome, for example.
3: Given the similarity between yeast cells and our own cells, would this in theory then be possible to do with a human cell?
0: Yes, this would be possible in principle with any uh, cell type from any organism. And some of my colleagues here in New York and in other parts of the world are very interested in engineering human cells to contain a synthetic genome or synthetic chromosomes. And we see many possible therapeutic benefits coming from this type of research we could make systematic alterations to the genetic code in the human cells that would render those cells unable to be infected by a virus. This is based on work that was started in a colleague's lab, George Church at Harvard.
3: I think I need some of those cells, given the slew of bugs I've had this winter. That was Jeff Bucher. He is from the NYU Langone Medical Center in New York, and the papers that presented that work have just come out in the journal Science.
2: Mind blown. I love that stuff. Now, six years ago this week, a tsunami hit Japan, killing 15,000 people. It also triggered a nuclear disaster at the Fukushima power station. This was caused by an offshore mega subduction earthquake. That's where one tectonic plate, that's the big kind of plates that make up the surface of the Earth, is forced beneath another. This can cause unpredictable and deadly chains of events. Now, a project called CRUST, that's short for Cascading. Risk and Uncertainty Assessment of Earthquake Shaking and Tsunami. It's in there somewhere. It's funded by the UK's Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, or EPSRC, and they've developed a system that could help us make better predictions about the consequences of undersea earthquakes, like the one that hit Japan. And with us to talk about this is CRUST team member and earthquake specialist, Crescenzo Petroni from University College London. Hello.
4: Hello, good evening.
2: Tell me a bit about CRUST, where did the idea to do this come from and and what's it actually doing?
4: CRUST is a joint effort between uh, University of Bristol uh, University College London and also uh, supported by testing facility at HR Wallingford and it's mainly looking at developing a computer model for the assessment of a chain of events which are triggered by uh, the subduction earthquake such as earthquake, tsunami, landslides and series of aftershock it's the first time where a unique platform is employed to uh, gather together a lot of different hazards which are typically modelled on their own.
2: So you might just look at, say, an earthquake or a tsunami separately and not bring them all together?
4: Uh, yes. So you might assess the damage on the build environment caused by uh, earthquake only, tsunami only, on lens lens only, Whereas this one is capable to get a unique results out of the study, which, all kinds yeah. of disaster,
2: <laughs> basically. So this yeah. is this isn't a kind of a prediction thing. This isn't the sort of thing you think about, like you know, red lights flashing, a tsunami is coming, you've got to get out of the area. That's not what we're talking about here.
4: No, this is a tool to be used in uh, peacetime. It's mainly uh, used to help policymakers to uh, mitigate the risk by employing proper uh, emergency uh, evacuation and also emergency planning, designing buildings against these threats, and the insurance sector in assessing the economic losses associated to this uh, kind of uh, events.
2: Because we do know now where in the world is susceptible to earthquakes, tsunamis. We know where the fault lines are that are cracking the surface of our Earth. So you're saying that this model will enable people in those areas to go, Okay, what are we at risk of? How should we take appropriate actions to defend ourselves?
4: Yes, yes, definitely. So policymakers might decide where to place a tsunami evacuation building where all the people should gather. Uh, In case a tsunami alert will will be triggered, they will decide where to put schools, hospitals and sensitive uh, kind of of buildings. And this will interest not only the Pacific Belt, which is like uh, Japan, uh, New Zealand, California and Chile, but also Europe. As we might recall that in the 18th century, a tsunami impacted uh, Lisbon and more recently in the 20th century, Uh, Also, a tsunami occurred in uh, southern Italy, so it's closer than we might think of.
2: And how do you get the data to put into this model? Because any model you need, like data from the real world, you Mm -hmm. put it into the computer and it kind of says this sort of thing might happen. Tell me about the sort of the model and the facility where you're studying this and getting data.
4: Yes, uh, part of the study uh, is uh, looking at uh, how the built environment responds in case a tsunami, an earthquake and tsunami occurs. And within this project, we are using a unique world-leading facility at HR Wallingford here in the UK, which is able to simulate tsunamis tsunami in a flume in particular we are looking at what's the impact of a tsunami on a multiple or cluster of buildings also taking into account the presence of coastal defenses which brutally failed during Japan uh, event
2: so what i'm imagining here is like Almost like a model village. You know, I've been to a model village. So is, is this what you've got? You've got basically a model village in an enormous tank of water and you spend yeah. all day just smashing it up.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, almost. Yeah, it's almost, sim- simplicity speaking, yes, it is like that. There's a, a water tank which uh, pumps uh, some water in sucks some water, so and so the water retrieves uh, from the shore, and then it um, and then the water inundates this uh, idealized group of buildings uh, which uh, we set up in Wallingford and we assessed what's the force uh, on the building and what's the influence of the building arrangement on uh, on the force acting on these kind of buildings.
2: Absolutely vital work. Thank you very much. That is Crescenzo Petroni from University College London.
4: Um, thank you very much.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Katani, and with Chris Smith. Still to come, the fight to save gorillas from Ebola and a look at the mess that we're making around the Earth. It's hurtling around at thousands of miles an hour. So how are you going to get that in your vacuum cleaner? How do we clean up space?
3: Well, while you ponder on that, let's consider OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder, about one person in 50 is affected. And patients with this condition often feel compelled by anxiety to perform repetitive ritualistic behaviours, like washing their hands a certain number of times or getting dressed in a certain way. If they don't comply, they experience this overwhelming sense of dread that something terrible is going to happen to them.
2: One way to treat these patients is to prevent sufferers from fulfilling their rituals. For example, making them touch a toilet seat and then stopping them from washing their hands more than once. But this only works for about half of patients. So what's needed is a deeper understanding of what causes OCD in the first place so that better therapies can be developed.
3: Well, now Annamika Apergis-Hauter at Cambridge University has discovered that OCD patients are extremely good at learning when things are unsafe or a threat to them, but they fail to be flexible and learn when something is actually safe.
5: We used an experiment where you had one threatening stimulus that meant it was um, a stimulus that was sometimes paired with a mild electric shock and another stimulus that was always safe, so it was never paired with a shock. And the nice thing about this experiment is that we can measure very small changes in sweat in the skin so we know exactly when the participant is expecting a shock and when they're not because you see a difference in the amount of sweat that comes on. And then, unannounced in the middle of this experiment, the threatening stimulus became the safe one and the safe one became the threatening one.
3: Right, so let's say for the sake of argument... I show them a picture of an orange, and I give them an electric shock mm-hmm. whenever they see it. I show them a picture of an apple, and I never give them an electric shock. And so you're measuring how much they sweat when I'm presenting this sequence of pictures at them randomly. And then all of a sudden, you flip round. So the orange, which was, I'm going to get a shock, now becomes no shock. And the apple, which was safe, now gets an electric shock. Exactly. So. If a person who is not affected by OCD does this... What do you see in a, in a normal person first?
5: Yeah, so what we see there is that they're very flexible. They have increased amounts of sweat, which we call skin conductance, to the threatening stimulus compared to the safe stimulus. And then when this reverses, so when the threatening one becomes safe and the safe one becomes threatening, they very easily adapt to this. So that in a few trials, the one that has now become threatening, which was previously safe, leads to more sweat than the newly safe one.
3: Right. And what happens when you do the same thing with someone who has got OCD?
5: Yeah, so what we found in this study is that although they initially learn that one of the stimuli is threatening, when this changes, they can't learn that the stimulus that was previously threatening is now safe. And
3: if one looks at the brain when it is in the process of doing this reversal when you take something that was a threat that had something unpleasant attached to it and you flip it round and make it unnasty, How does it compare when you look at someone who's normal and someone who's got OCD?
5: So because we performed this experiment while the participants were in the brain scanner, an area called the ventral medial prefrontal cortex that we know is specifically involved in learning about safety of stimuli. And we already know that this area gives a larger signal to when a stimulus is safe. What we found was that this signal was actually entirely absent in OCD patients from the get-go, meaning they did the initial learning based on just learning about the threatening stimulus in absence of learning most likely about the safe stimulus.
3: Is it that there's physically some kind of circuitry missing that enables them to ascribe safety to things, or is it that they're just very good at rendering things unsafe.
5: I have my own theory about this. I believe that this area of the brain might be too concerned with their kind of self-referential type of thinking about their 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 own obsessions and perhaps unavailable to pay attention when things are rewarding or safe in the environment.
3: And does this help that 40% or so of people for whom the exposure therapy does not work at the moment. Have we got some clues on the basis of what you found as to ways we can intervene more meaningfully for those people?
5: So, yeah, we think that we can come up now with new therapies. For example, in terms of the exposure response prevention therapy, we could augment the therapy by enhancing the experience of the safety. So when they actually touch the toilet seat that they feel more of a reward, that they feel, oh, yes, indeed, nothing went terribly wrong when I didn't wash my hands right afterwards. So this experience can be more meaningful and perhaps is easier for them afterwards to overcome the urge of performing the compulsion.
3: Let's hope so. Anna Mika Apurgis-Hauter, and she's just published that study in PNAS. Well, now it's time for our regular myth conception, where we take dodgy science to task. And this week, Kat has been sniffing out the truth about our senses.
2: Even a child knows that we have five senses. Touch, smell, sight, taste, and of course, for fans of the Naked Scientists, hearing. Together, they enable us to perceive the world around us and literally make sense of reality. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines sense, in this context, as a specialised function or mechanism, as sight, hearing, smell, taste or touch, by which an animal receives and responds to external or internal stimuli. But it might surprise you to know that the textbook idea of five senses is actually a myth. The latest scientific research suggests that we have far more than five senses, and maybe as many as 33 in total, or even hundreds more. So, where did the idea of five senses come from? And what are all these other senses that we have? Let's listen and learn. The idea of the big five, as I'll call them, probably dates back to Aristotle and his book De Anima, or On the Soul, where he explains the classic five senses of smell, taste, touch, vision, and hearing. And since then, this sensory quintet has been the starting point for pretty much every sensory discussion, from science to philosophy. As scientists learned more about the nervous system and the inputs that go into it, the total number of senses went up to nine, namely the famous five, plus pain, mechanoreception, that's balance and direction, temperature, and so-called enteroreceptors, which measure things like blood pressure or how stretched your bladder is, meaning that it's time to take a trip to the loo. The latest research suggests that we have at least 21 senses, and some researchers put that number up at around 33. The list includes smell, taste, low light vision, that's rod cells in the eye, color vision, that's cone cells, sound, pressure, heat, cold, itch, proprioception, knowing where bits of your body are in space, tension, such as in muscles and tendons, stretch, that's bladder, lungs and things like that, pain balance, thirst, hunger, and chemicals in the blood, such as hormones. Then there's magnetoception, the ability to detect magnetic fields. This is very weak in humans, but it does seem to be there. And then there's the ability to accurately sense time passing, which is more hotly debated, but does seem to go awry in people with neurological disorders. There is the question of when to stop counting senses. Do we count each type of taste receptor? That's sweet, salt, sour and umami. And what about the weird effects of Sichuan peppercorns, which actually cause vibration-like stimulation of a facial nerve? And should we count all the thousands of individual odorant receptors in the nose as individual senses? After all, they all pick up different smelly chemicals. Added to this is also the discovery that some people have senses that others don't. For example, some people can learn to see in the dark using echolocation, making clicks with their tongue and listening to how the sound bounces off the walls around them. But before we start suffering from a sensory overload, let's take a step back. In fact, the bigger question is not exactly how many senses we have, but how our brains integrate all the information coming into our bodies to build up a picture of the world around us. The exact number doesn't really matter. It's what we do with this information that counts.
3: Indeed, and thank you very much, Cat. Meanwhile, if you at home have noticed a myth that you'd like us to apply our common sense to—the one sense that Cat didn't mention—send it in now to Chris at thenakedscientists dot com, and we will indeed take a look. Now, Ebola made the headlines in 2014 when there was a massive outbreak in West Africa. Thankfully, for the time being at least, the threat to humans has been halted, but there's still a huge problem for gorillas. In fact, experts estimate that over the last 30 years, a third of gorillas have been wiped out by the virus. So how do you protect a wild animal from a disease like Ebola? Well, the answer is, funnily enough, in the same way you do people, with a vaccine – The results from a trial in chimpanzees for a new oral vaccine against Ebola were published this week in Scientific Reports, and that suggests the vaccine would be very effective and with no damaging side effects. But new legislation in the US could prevent further trials of this kind, and that could be devastating for future outbreaks of diseases in our endangered animal cousins. Georgia Mills spoke to Peter Walsh from the University of Cambridge and Apes Incorporated about the challenges of trying to vaccinate a 450-pound wild gorilla.
6: With wild animals, it's more difficult to protect them. Some of the gorillas and chimpanzees are in tourism programs or in research programs where, where they're habituated to the presence of people. And with those animals, you can get up close. You can get a dart gun or a blow dart. We use a. And you can shoot them with a little dart that has the vaccine. The other animals are very afraid of people. And so it's too difficult to try to track each one and, and shoot them with a dart. So what we're working on is an oral vaccine where, the, where you put the vaccine in a little bait. We're using a, a fruity bait that's sweet, and we're testing that now in, in Africa. And um, and you put the vaccine in there, and then you can put that in, in areas where there's high activity area, uh, rates by, by gorillas and chimpanzees, and then it'll eat the bait, and, and then they'll they become immunized that way. I have a problem right now. We have Gambian rats, pouched rats, and the rats come in at night, and they eat all my baits. <laughs> and so I'm working on ways to get around that. And But in principle, we should have the ability to really – precisely target who gets vaccinated.
7: Okay. And I suppose you've got to test that this form works.
6: Exactly. So we need to go out and preferably in the species that we're trying to vaccinate in the wild, we need to, t- to test it in a captive animal or a closely related species. So chimpanzees and gorillas and humans also are very closely related. And so the objective in testing this in a chimp is to see, will it have a robust immune response and will it cause any kind of health complications? And so the trial we've just done did exactly that. We took 10 chimpanzees, four of them we injected um, intramuscularly, and six we gave an oral dose of the vaccine. And then we took blood samples every week for, for, for a month. And what we found was, first of all, it didn't cause any health complications. They didn't get sick, and they didn't show uh, any kind of behavioral anomalies. They didn't, weren't really stressed out. And the other thing that showed that they had an immune response that was very similar to the immune response of monkeys- who were vaccinated and then challenged with Ebola and survived. So we didn't actually challenge the, the the chimps with Ebola, we just looked at their immune response and their health response, but their immune response was very similar to the reaction the responses of these monkeys that were actually challenged and survived challenge.
7: Is it quite hard to test these things? I mean, there aren't too many gorillas and chimps around. Is it is it hard to get that testing process through?
6: Yes, it's exceptionally hard because the United States was the last developed country that, that allowed biomedical testing on chimps. And as of last summer, they, they've now banned it. And the rationale was that it was in, inhumane and that it was not, unproductive scientifically. And I don't want to get into a debate about whether or not it was productive for human health. That's somebody else's business. But what I can tell you absolutely was is, A, that it's not unproductive for conservation reasons, and B... We actually did monitor the stress responses of the chimpanzees during the trial, and they don't show the extreme health effects that the, the animal welfare advocates were claiming. So now they've shut down these facilities, and we really have no place where we, can, where we can do the trial. Now, what critics say was you could do this in a sanctuary, you could do this in a zoo. Well, the sanctuaries are all philosophically opposed to animal testing, so they won't do it. Zoos have facilities to do it safely. That's the other issue is where can you do this safely? But they're terrified of public backlash. So here we are. We have really no place where we can do these trials. And consequently, that's a problem because in Africa, they say if you haven't tested that vaccine in a captive ape or in a human, you're not going to use it on our endangered apes in the wild. So it's this catch-22.
7: All right. So for f- in future, when the next Ebola comes, it's going to be more difficult to do what you've done here.
6: Uh- Exactly. So people – this has happened before. Ebola goes away for a while and people say, oh, it's gone. It's not a problem anymore. And then boom, it comes back and it kills a bunch of people and it kills a thing. All of a sudden, it's it's in the news. We're going to worry about it again. For once, for once, why don't we like think into the future and not react on a crisis basis but actually plan ahead and say, you know, A, we're going to need – to to vaccinate for Ebola again in the future. And B, there's all these other diseases they're they're, they're pushing. These animals are critically in danger. They're in really bad shape. And it's incredibly frustrating because we have the ability to protect these animals, but we're not doing it for silly, foolish reasons.
2: Absolutely passionate there about the tragic irony of not being able to protect primates due to concerns about protecting primates. That's Peter Walsh from Cambridge University. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me Kat Arney, and with Chris Smith
3: And this week we're now gazing into outer space and surveying the mess that we're making around our planet because there are quite literally thousands of relics of our earlier forays into space hurtling around the planet and they're posing a serious threat to satellites They might even jeopardise the future of space travel
2: Indeed, if you have seen the film Gravity, as well as remembering George Clooney in it, you might remember the catastrophic cascade of broken satellites and spacecraft that caused problems for Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. And we will be finding out later if that's a real possibility and what scientists are trying to do about it.
3: But before that, let's find out a bit more about these pieces of debris. Project Adrift are a pair of artists, Kath Lacuta and Nick Ryan, who've attempted to give a voice to these bits of junk with a multimedia project, including turning it into music. We heard from Kath how the story of a spatula started it all. Guys,
0: I've got to tell you, I think my spatula's escaped.
8: I was researching another project and I came across this story of an astronaut, Piers Sellers, dropping his spatula in space in 2006 and it became a bit of space junk and was careening around the Earth at 17,500 miles per hour. And I found this image just really provocative, a very mundane kitchen instrument hurtling around the Earth And that uh, image made me think, wow, what is this space debris? And so I read up a little bit more and discovered in 1965 that another astronaut had dropped his glove in space. And that too for me was just a very, very strong image, quite a sad image, you know, a glove just like orbiting around the Earth on its own. And I guess that's what initially made me Interested and, and curious about what was this world of space debris that I knew nothing about. And pretty quickly after that, I discovered that it represented this very significant crisis and that there was actually a hundred million bits of junk circling our Earth. When I first started discussing this hidden world with Nick, Nick Ryan, who's a sound artist, Nick was instantly fascinated with how this space junk was silent In how could he give voice to this junk. And so he developed an instrument, an electromechanical instrument, that's about one and a half metres long. It's made of aluminium and it turns and into this long aluminium cylinder a thousand grooves of sound. And every time a bit of space junk flies above where the instrument is, a little stylus hooks into one of those grooves and plays a sound. The different sounds, depending on the size of the junk, that will determine the kind of tone that you're hearing. So a very small bit of junk has a very high pitch and some of the really enormous bits of junk. There's a piece of space junk called Envisat that's the size of a London bus. And if a very big bit of junk passes overhead, then you hear a very kind of deep tone. It's potential of all this space junk is so incredibly destructive and yet some of it is extraordinarily beautiful. And some of it has the, you know, the most wonderful stories behind them. A lot of the junk that's up there, early satellites that were part of the very, very beginning of the space race in the early 50s. It's like there's a floating museum of our past space exploration travelling above us. But at the same time, these beautiful items in many ways are now threatening to also destroy us. We commissioned um, several fantastic writers to write the characters of the three bits of space junk we were most interested in. And they wrote stories that were true for those bits of space junk and developed personalities for those bits of junk. So Vanguard was the first solar-powered satellite into space, oldest bit of space junk ever. So it's a very heroic, proud piece of space junk, but it's now starting to question its purpose in life. So it's a bit depressive. Suitsat is an old Russian spacesuit that was pushed out of the International Space Station in 2007. And it was fitted with a transmitter for real. It was meant to communicate with us on Earth, but it failed, became a bit of space junk, and it burnt up in Earth's atmosphere. So, for the purposes of Project Adrift, Suitsat is a ghost, and it's traveling the exact path that it took when it was first pushed out of the station. And Fengyun, Fengyun was born out of a very violent, deliberate explosion in space. The Chinese sent up a missile to blow up an old weather station, and they blew it into three thousand pieces. It was the worst space debris event of all time.
1: My name is Sutsat. Alone in space, I spiraled around in a thing, making shapes in a thing. Having a line through the nothing But in the nothing More and more sparkling things appeared Not stars Space junk All this junk was flying past me At 17,000 miles per hour This was what I was meant to speak about All it could take is one more collision appear And future space exploration Will become impossible Gruff Reese
3: voicing Suitsat and before that Kath Lakuta from Project Adrift and you can actually see their video and even adopt a piece of space junk yourself at projectadrift.co.uk.
2: So we've just heard that space junk is a threat to us, but why? And how come there is so much of it up there? We're joined now by Dr Hugh Lewis from the University of Southampton to find out. He is an expert in extraterrestrial rubbish. Hi Hugh, why is there so much junk up there? What is it?
9: Well, we've been launching uh, satellites into orbit since uh, the late 1950s. Um, So we've basically accumulated a lot of junk associated with all those space launches. Um, they could be uh, satellites that have reached the end of their mission. It could be the parts of the rocket that we've used to put the satellites there. And it could be bits and pieces from those satellites that have that have somehow come away. Um, but the most numerous objects up there are fragments from explosions and collisions.
2: It's big bits and it's small bits. But, uh, you know, why is it so much of a problem? Doesn't it all eventually just fall back down to Earth?
9: Well, actually, many of the objects that are up there will be up there for, um, you know, centuries or even longer. And that's uh, simply because the the only mechanism we've got for removing the objects from orbit is the atmosphere at the moment, and it's the atmosphere is so sparse at those altitudes.
2: So things aren't just aren't breaking down and, and burning up.
9: No, absolutely. So, so yes, if if an object is uh, experiencing enough atmospheric drag, it will come down and, and burn up. But objects that are high enough don't experience that kind of drag. And and, and they can be there for, you know, um, some of the objects. uh, Kath mentioned Envisat in her her piece there, and that's potentially up there for more than 100 years.
2: Now, isn't space massive? uh, You know, we we shouldn't forget that space is enormous. So how come this junk poses a problem for other things we want to send up into space?
9: Well, I think the the space is big mantra was used uh, and has been used since the beginning of the space age, uh, and it's certainly true, you know, the, the volume uh, that space occupies is is enormous. But what we're doing is we're sending satellites into, into quite specific orbits and into orbits that are relatively close to the Earth. Uh, and if we keep doing that as we've been doing for the last 50, 60 years, then all that junk accumulates relatively close to the Earth in these quite congested orbits.
2: Uh, the, I think the the way I like to think about it is it like a trail of muck going from your front door where you always walk across the same <laughs> bit of the carpet.
9: Yes, absolutely right. Yeah, that's a very good analogy.
2: So we saw in the film Gravity, there's a collision with some space junk. It sets off a massive chain reaction. Is that kind of the, the worst case scenario that there could be a rocket going up or a really important communication satellite or something and it gets knocked
9: out? Yeah, so fundamentally the, the problem with space debris is it will be those collisions that could occur you know you could lose a satellite from from an impact with something in orbit but that collision cascade that you talk about is i guess you could say that's the absolute worst case that you could expect that's something that we're working very hard to try and avoid
2: now there was in the news recently that the chinese have apparently lost control of an abandoned space station that was up there so presumably this is now classed as space junk Uh, it's quite a big thing what's going to happen to it up there
9: yeah, so that particular space station, uh, I guess it's, it's not as big as the International Space Station, slowly uh, moving down in terms of altitude and will ultimately, we hope, burn up in the in the atmosphere.
2: But what if it doesn't? Is it going to come down? And, and do these bits of junk actually come down and hit the Earth?
9: It is possible for parts of spacecraft to survive that re-entry process, that, that the heating and, and the loading that they experience. So some components may survive down to the, to the surface of the Earth, but most of the earth, three-quarters of the earth, is covered by water. So it's quite likely that we never even see these objects as they come in.
2: So we also heard in, uh, in, in Kath's piece that there's a whole load of debris from the Chinese trying to blow up something to try and get rid of it, and that's just made the problem worse. Is it the big bits of debris or the small bits that are the most concerning?
9: Well, I think in terms of the, the kind of long-term evolution of the, the space environment, uh, we worry about the big objects uh, because essentially all that mass is, is, uh, that's locked into that object can be converted into many, many fragments. But in terms of objects that can be lethal, you're talking about objects that are probably the order of millimetres in size that can actually pose serious risk to operational spacecraft
2: that that seems pretty dramatic when you think oh it's just going to be something massive and in fact it could be a almost a, a fragment of dust something the size of a piece of sand that could bring down your spaceship
9: Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, the the space shuttle, when that was flying, they would have to replace the the windows on the space shuttle, for example, um, due to the impacts that they would receive from objects that were very, very small. Um, The craters that were left behind there are just perfect evidence of the the risk that the space debris poses.
8: Uh,
2: Big stuff from small stuff. Thanks. That's Hugh Lewis from Southampton University.
9: This
3: is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can follow us up on Twitter at Naked Scientists, or you can visit our website, nakedscientist.com.
2: We are discussing the perils of an overcrowded Earth orbit, which we've now littered with thousands, millions of pieces of space junk over the past 60 years. And later, we'll be looking at some ideas scientists have come up with to start cleaning up our mess, including fishing nets and harpoons.
3: Before that, though, how is this actually affecting our current exploits in space tim flora is a space debris analyst from the european space agency tim tell us first of all how much of a problem is this for ESA, the european space agency
10: well you have to distinguish two things um we are operating our spacecraft so it's part of our daily business to deal with the space debris that is up there and secondly, of course, we, we are planning technologies to bring back um, these large objects that, that you were talking about. So it's, uh, uh, it's something we, we, we care of uh, in, in, in more in the future aspects, if you, if you like.
3: So there's both the worrying about where it is and then worrying about making sure it doesn't hit your spacecraft. So let's unpick that a bit then. So tell us, how do you track these objects? How are you keeping an eye on where the things are?
10: There's something that is called um, a catalog of uh, basically of orbital elements. So you can imagine it's like the positions and, and velocities of these debris objects um, down to let's say about 10 centimeters, or a bit smaller, like this, and that is available from from sensors on ground and on in space. And, and basically, it comes from, from the US, um, from, from sensors that the uh, US is running. So these are radar sensors and, and also uh, telescopes. Radars cover more the lower altitude, the lower uh, orbits, and optical sensors more the, the higher altitudes. So you build up a,
3: a profile yes, of, of what's up and, and where, basically, so you know what's, what's where and how big it is, and how fast it's moving and where it's going. Exactly.
10: Exactly. And from that, we can calculate the risk that it is to be in the same position at the same time, you name it, a collision.
3: Okay, once you've tracked something, say you want to put a spacecraft in a certain position or go from A to B, and you know there are some of these objects around. How do you make sure that your spacecraft doesn't get hit by
10: them? As you said, we are predicting the positions of these debris objects and we know where our object is. And if the risk is too high, then we do something that we call collision avoidance. So we move away our spacecraft and make it out of the way of the debris object and then move it back after the close approach is passed.
3: And is there a financial cost to this i presume there must be if you have to sort of move things around then you're using fuel you're using time you may be moving things out of service so is there an impact on people's pockets through having to do this
10: you're absolutely right um we being the european space agency we can't do science in that time frame where the satellite is not it's supposed to be so for for us it's mainly losing the valuable time for acquiring the, the science data But for commercial operators, it means that they can't do business doing that short time frame, but it's a short time they can't do their their business.
3: And with an eye on the future, are you future-proofing or has anyone put in place a policy now so that when we send things up there, we've got an end-of-life idea what's going to happen to it, how we either retrieve it or stop it breaking up to contribute to the problem and and make the problem worse?
10: There are two things. One is, we call it mitigation of space debris, and this covers these aspects like Passivate your spacecraft at the end of life. Uh, so make it sure it can't explode or fragment. So remove the fuel, shortcut the batteries and those things. And the second thing is to move it into an, an orbital regime where it's not in a protected regime and also to limit the time in orbit. And uh, that is very important. It has been uh, moved into standards and into, into guidelines and in some countries even into, into a law. But this is an ongoing process. So the standards are there, the guidelines are developing and uh, the law and regulations uh, widely has to come still.
3: But if the Chinese decide they're going to blow up another satellite tomorrow, is there anything that can stop them?
10: Well, political pressure, of course, can can, can stop this. But um, if they have the technology, um, then that's something they, they can do. But I'm pretty sure they won't do that.
3: So they've learned their lesson, is, is sort of what you're saying.
10: I, I think so, uh, because they are operating the same, in the same orbit as all the others. So also their satellites have to move away the debris they, they created with, these, with this event in the past.
3: What about the things that, that we're working on right now, things like the International Space Station? Because that's huge. Um, is there an end-of-life plan for that, to retrieve that safely so it doesn't contribute to the debris up there?
10: Well, first of all, we, we hope that this International Space Station is, is still there for a few more years. But um, actually, we are looking into, into this already, how, how to bring it down. But this is a few years to go still.
3: OK, well, it's good to know that people are worrying about these things. Tim, thanks very much. Oh, That's sure. uh, Tim Flora, and he is from the European Space Agency.
2: So we've heard how space junk is a problem, and we've heard how it can morph into a much larger problem in the future. So the big question is... How do we clean up the mess that we've made up there? There are a few projects worldwide looking into this and one is at Surrey Space Centre where the appropriately named Project Debris is going to test several technologies for bringing this junk back down to Earth. Aaron Knoll is a researcher at Surrey Space Centre and Georgia Mills asked him why it's so tricky to fix this messy problem.
11: Uh, Well, it's a challenge because uh, pieces of space debris are, uh, one, in space, so they're uh, quite a ways away from the uh, surface of the Earth. Uh, But the other reason is that they're moving incredibly fast. So they're moving on order about seven kilometres every second. So actually rendezvousing with a piece of space debris in and of itself is an extraordinary challenge, let alone trying to get rid of it.
7: And what is Surrey Space Centre trying to do about this?
11: Well, we have a uh, project called Remove Debris, uh, which is aiming to demonstrate technologies for rendezvousing with an uncooperative object, that's a piece of space junk, and then testing various technologies to actually tether or secure ourselves to the object, and then finally to tow the object out of orbit.
7: So what kind of things is it going to try and do?
11: Well, it has a couple different technologies it's uh, testing in orbit. Uh, The first is a harpoon, Uh, which sounds rather primitive in technology, (laughs) and indeed uh, you can say it is. Uh, But what it is, is it's a a sharp metal object that penetrates the uh, surface of, let's say, an old uh, dysfunctional satellite. Uh, And then with barbs, it actually uh, hooks on to the the surface of that satellite. Uh, And you have a tether connecting the harpoon to the main uh, mothership, and then that mothership can pull it out of orbit.
7: And what about, for, I assume that's sort of for the larger pieces, what about the smaller ones?
11: Well, we're also uh, testing something called net capture. So we deploy a large net, uh, which ensnares uh, smaller objects. And uh, as well as with the harpoon, once you've ensnared those objects, uh, you would use a tether to drag them out of orbit.
7: OK, I like the way it's a harpoon and a fishing net you've got here. It's cleaning up space junk is basically fishing.
11: Uh, Yes. (laughs) I'll say uh, the actual technologies were uh, selected based on their reliability. So you don't want to have uh, pieces of technology which are complicated just purely for the sake of being complicated. You want to actually balance what you're trying to do against the most convenient way of doing it. And it turns out that the uh, net and the harpoon were actually uh, coming up on top in terms of their simplicity and their reliability.
7: Once you harpoon or you net the piece of space junk, how do you get it back to Earth?
11: So once we've secured them, we're testing a a deorbiting sail. So this is a a five by five metre sail, uh, and it puts a large drag surface area onto the spacecraft so that even the small amount of atmosphere, which is in orbit, uh, will slowly pull the spacecraft uh, on a descending trajectory, uh, and it'll burn up in a ball of fire in the Earth's atmosphere.
7: And so uh, where are we with this uh, plan? What's what's next?
11: Uh, well, uh, we've come a long way on actually developing the technology. So the next phase is to launch it into orbit. And I believe it's launching within the next year or two. And then we'll be able to see whether these technologies actually work.
7: Oh, wow. And is the plan um, in the long run for this technology, is the sort of mothership going to go along sort of grabbing loads of different bits of space debris? Or is it is that not possible? And will it just have to get one and fall back to Earth? Because that seems an incredibly expensive way of cleaning up space.
11: Yeah, so the uh, long term objectives, I think what you'll see is a mothership that's able to rendezvous with multiple objects, and then attach to them sails or rocket motors to drag them out of orbit. But then it could rendezvous with yet another object. So you would have one mission cleaning up multiple pieces of space debris.
7: These are sort of projects, sorry, space centres working on. Are there any other kind of zany ideas or wacky plans people have come up with to try and sort this problem out?
11: Uh, Yes, I've heard of uh, a number of different projects. Uh, The one that I find particularly interesting uh, is called the Ion Beam Shepherd. As opposed to actually securing to the object with a tether and then trying to drag it out of space, this one aims to use an ion beam from a spacecraft at some distance away from the object, to push it gently out of orbit. Uh, And I think that's quite exciting, because uh, eliminating the complexity of actually trying to secure yourself to a tumbling object in space, makes the mission much more practical. And also, you can imagine that uh, if you're pushing an object out of orbit using an ion beam, then you could uh, rendezvous with far more objects because you don't have to attach to each of them a sail uh, or a rocket motor. So uh, that one struck me as rather clever.
7: Oh, wow. So the idea that a spacecraft would just sort of aim and fire, like pew, pew, at all these different bits of space, debris and they'd just fly out of Earth's orbit. So they'd still be in space, but they wouldn't be our problem anymore.
11: Uh, Yes, so you could push them higher up uh, into uh, higher orbits, what we call graveyard orbits, Uh, or you could push them down into the Earth's atmosphere. Either way, you're clearing uh, the useful areas of space, the low Earth orbit area, uh, for future space missions.
7: Wow, very cool, very cool ideas. Here's my idea. Why can't we just use magnets to sweep it all up?
11: Ah, yes, so this is an interesting one. It's because magnets actually will have very little effect on a spacecraft. Spacecraft are designed to be what we call magnetically clean objects, Uh, That means we specially choose the material so that they have absolutely no ferromagnetic properties. The reason we do that is because if spacecraft were magnetic, they would interact with the Earth's own magnetic field, uh, what we call sort of a compass mode instability. And so by making spacecraft very magnetically clean, they can fulfill their mission. Unfortunately, it means that we can't secure
3: to them with magnets.
7: Ah, so not, not a great plan then.
11: Uh, Maybe not the best.
3: (laughs) So, no magnets then, but it's good to hear that scientists are on the case all the same. That was Aaron Knowles speaking with Georgia Mills. And a very big thank you to our other guests this week who came before him, Kath Lakuta, Hugh Lewis and Tim Flora.
2: And now it's time for question of the week. Ricky Nathvani has been shedding some light on this question from Philip.
3: My home in Cambridge has about 60% compact fluorescent light bulbs and the rest are LEDs. Should I be chucking out the former, even though they still work, on the grounds that they use lots of power compared with LEDs, or should I just wait until they break over time and only replace them with LEDs then?
12: Compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, are the energy-saving bulbs that slowly replaced the inefficient incandescent filament bulbs you used to be able to find. Now LEDs are on the scene, and they're even more efficient than CFLs. But should we rush to replace all our bulbs with them straight away, or just replace them as they break? Andy Smale, from the consultancy Energy Expert, cast light on the matter for us.
1: LED technology is now far superior to compact fluorescent designs. LED bulbs switch on instantly at full brightness, rather than taking a minute or two to warm up. And most LED bulbs now replicate the yellowish light of old filament bulbs very closely, whereas compact fluorescent bulbs can still sometimes have a pink or purple tinge. On the downside, a minority of LED bulbs have a high frequency flicker which bothers some people more than others.
12: No competition between LEDs and CFLs then? But would buying LED bulbs end up costing me more money than they're really worth?
1: The best LED bulbs use about half the energy of compact fluorescent bulbs for the same light output and are now claimed to last between 10 and 25 years for typical use. If you buy a pack of them, you can get them for about £2 each. So, they will pay for themselves in savings over just two and a half years if you're replacing a compact fluorescent bulb, and within four months when replacing a filament bulb.
12: OK, in just a few years, the amount they've saved me in energy costs more than makes up for the initial cost, but can I justify it on environmental grounds? What about CO2 emissions?
1: Likewise, the carbon emissions resulting from manufacturing a new LED bulb are about four kilograms of carbon dioxide, and recycling your old compact fluorescent bulb releases about 100 grams of carbon dioxide. We're in the region of about 3kg if you drive 3 miles or so to your nearest recycling centre and bank. So there's a one-off seven to 7-8kg carbon dioxide cost in replacing the bulbs. But since LEDs release about 2kg less carbon dioxide a year, assuming average usage, then in 4 years you'll have released less carbon dioxide overall than if you hadn't switched them at all. That saving is compounded if you replace all the bulbs in one go. As a result of these advantages, there is a strong economic and environmental argument for replacing all of your older energy-saving bulbs before they expire.
12: Looks like a no-brainer. Not only are LEDs cheaper, but they're also better for the environment in the long run. Time to go throw away all my old CFLs.
1: Compact fluorescent bulbs contain environmentally hazardous mercury and other materials which can be recycled. So when they are swapped out, they must only be disposed of in the special facilities available at most recycling centres.
12: Right better be careful to dispose of them safely at a recycling centre. Thanks for the answer Andy and now a look at our question for next week from Mehran
3: in the USA. Is it possible to get HIV from a mosquito or any insect that has drawn blood from an infected person and transferred it to a healthy person?
2: If you think you know the answer, do let us know. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook.
3: And that's all we've got time for this week. The programme was produced by Georgia Mills. And do join us next time when we're going to be putting fertility under the microscope as we examine how modern life is affecting our ability to reproduce. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you for listening. Goodbye.